Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. This is Mike Wong with the second half of a fascinating conversation with University of Washington psychologist and astrobiologist Thea Weiss. In her doctoral research, Thea studies how people interact with both nature and technology, and how those interactions are changing with time in an increasingly technological world. Last time on Strange New Worlds, Thea told us about how simulated forms of nature compare to actual nature in terms of their impact on human well-being, which sparked a provocative discussion about the use of the holodeck in Star Trek as a tool for rest and recreation. This line of scientific inquiry is important to modern astrobiology too, because it may help us improve, for instance, the mental health of future astronauts on long-duration voyages. But technology isn't just here to mimic nature, it's also increasingly mimicking us. Today, we're going to talk about anthropomorphic robots and the way that children see those robots as possessing mental states and moral standing. This of course is directly related to a huge theme in Star Trek, which is the rights that the Federation gives to its synthetic beings, and the big questions regarding consciousness and sentience. So let's dive back into the conversation and begin right where we left off. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I goodness. think that also has to do with the idea of the, the other episode I was able to watch with uh, Data and what is his state of being, of consciousness, of his relationship to those around him. And I think this is going to become, it's going to become an issue that uh, is more prescient as we go forward following that exponential growth of our technology. And it's really cool to see that in, I guess, in the late 80s and early 90s, Star Trek was already considering these issues. But if we're interacting with robotic beings or whatever way we want to say artificially intelligent beings, and I understand that that term has uh, layers to it and history to it, but if we're going to think of the episode we watched and of uh, what we have currently, um, Data clearly behaves like a person in terms of looking like us, walking like us, even having a relationship with a crew member that was intimate, that he kept something, a keepsake, something that is important to him that shows emotion, affect. And so the, the critical debate that Picard uh, the turning point of that that scene of the the court was that he's displaying data is displaying all of these qualities of sentience so how can we distinguish between data and ourselves and how can we say that this sentient being although created by man although its origin is of made by man how can we say that it is therefore not of the same status of man. And I think that also has to do with our relationship to the earth. These things are on the same level as us. Just because either we are able to manipulate it or we're able to create it, does it mean that then it's our property? I think there's a, a, a false hierarchy that exists in terms of uh, man and human relationship to 
technology in the world around us. And that episode with data was a great representation of if we're going forward and, and looking at, you know, not just saying, hey, Alexa, set a timer for me, but hey, Alexa, it's embodied Android female nanny for my children or male nanny, whatever, it doesn't matter. At what point do they become sentient beings and we give them due uh, respect in a relational way, not in a dominational way? I think this is a great point to transition into our second paper that we are going to yeah, talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so this one is titled Robovi. Am I am I am I pronouncing yes, Robovi? Yeah, Robovi. Okay, it's Robovi. You have to go to, into the closet now. <laughs> yes. Children's social and moral relationships with a humanoid robot. Yes. Um, and so this study is about the moral and ethical perceptions that children have of human-like robots. Thea, yeah. do you think you could walk us through how this study was performed and what its results were? Yeah. So the gist of this study is that uh, my advisor, Professor Peter Kahn, was uh, working with Hiroshi Ishiguro and other roboticists from Japan. And they have this, this robot, Robovi. So Robovi is a very robot looking robot let's say uh r2d2 with arms (laughs) (laughs) moves quite mechanically and they wanted to see if at a children and uh spanning i believe from 9 to 15 so mm, young not not super young but um like children let's say elementary to young adolescents they would be interacting with robovi and the technique that was being used was called Wizard of Ozing, where, whereby uh, my advisor and the graduate students running the study uh, were in another room controlling Robovi and creating the speech that was produced by Robovi to the participant, to the children, and to the other graduate student who was in the room. But the, the children believed that Robovi was acting autonomously, okay? And so they would have the children interact with Robovi. And one example is they would have uh, children play I Spy with Robovi, right? Mm. And uh, they would have Robovi guess what object, you know, the, the whole spiel of I Spy. So they're playing the game. And then the other graduate student researcher comes in and says, oh, okay, you know what? It's, it's time to start the interview. Robovi, you're gonna have to go in the closet. And Robovi says, well, no, we're playing a game. I, <laughs> I want to finish playing the game. And uh-huh. Robovi in this, in this scenario has a very, uh, like a, a childlike voice in a robotic way. And the graduate students researcher is like, well, no, you're just a robot. Come on, time to go in the closet. And what my advisor and his collaborators want to see was how did children react to this, uh, both in the moment and then following uh, in the interview. And then so... Uh, Robovi's going toward the closet. In one example, maybe a child might say, or an adolescent, hey, well, let him, let him finish. And graduate student researcher following, you know, protocol, no, 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 uh, Robovi, it's time, come on, keep going. And then finally, Robovi stops right before the closet. I don't want to go into the closet. I'm scared. Oh. I don't want to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends by the robot, uh, Robovi, going fully into the closet, doors being closed. Uh, and then the interview with the children and the adolescents can begin. And this interview will assess essentially how much the child perceives Robovi as having 
uh, its own mind, uh, having moral standing, deserve certain civil liberties or civil rights. Um, and when I was reading this study, I was struck by how hard it is to actually assess how people perceive moral standing. And how yes. tricky that can be. And I was struck by one set of questions that the mm -hmm. experimenters asked the children after the whole Robovi go into the closet now deal uh, happened, uh, which surrounded aliens, hypothetical aliens. Yeah. And they asked the kids if aliens encountered Robovi and put him in the closet, would that be okay? After having previously asked the kids, was, you know, me putting Robovi in the closet okay. And then they went on to ask, you know, if aliens wanted Robovi to, um, you know, be their personal maid, would that be okay? If aliens decided to sell Robovi to each other or deconstruct Robovi to recycle its parts, would that be okay? Yeah. And, you know, because we're coming at this from a Star Trek slash astrobiological lens, I was wondering what exactly is the point of asking the question like this. Why phrase it as if aliens came to Earth and encountered Robovi and treated Robovi in these quote unquote disrespectful ways, would that be okay? What does that do? Yeah, aliens would, at least from the children's perspective, exist outside of the, the category, the species category that they themselves are part of, right? The human species for this age of children, to you know, young adolescents, they're aware we're humans. But if you can say, okay, this other species, other sentient beings come to the planet, uh, what will their relationship be to this robot? And in that sense can potentially provide a more objective view of the relationship with Robovi. However, I think it also opens new doors, uh, maybe rabbit holes to some of, what does it mean for our relationship to one form of potential sentient being and another technological form of sentient being? I think that itself could be its own set of studies of how we might presume other forms of sentient beings might interact with each other. And not only how would they, but how should they, if we're thinking from a moral developmental standpoint. Yeah, very interesting. So it's sort of to remove the human from remove the equation. The human, yes, but yeah. it introduces, at least in this study, a way of approaching at least a more objective standpoint for the child than being the human perspective. Mm -hmm. But I think it introduces a really interesting point of our understanding of other sentience or consciousness and of our attribution of any kind of moral principle or respect to them. So this paper, uh, if I remember the findings correctly, suggests that human-like robots like Robovi are occupying a new ontological category because the majority of children during this interview told the experimenters that they believed that Robovi had mental states and they believed that Robovi had moral standing, that it was wrong to put Robovi in the closet if Robovi didn't want to be in the closet. But a majority of the children did not grant Robovi civil liberties or civil rights, meaning yeah. when they were asked questions like, should Robovi be able to vote for president? <laughs> you know, yeah. they said, no, Robovi should not have that right to vote for president. Um, so 
this kind of is really interesting that our technology is becoming a category onto itself. And I was wondering uh, what your thoughts are on that and what our responsibilities are for defining this new ontological category. Yeah, my advisor calls it the NOC, N-O-C, hypothesis. So yeah, new ontological category, ontology just being uh, like the origins. So we're, we're seeing that at this developmental stage of these children that, well, they don't want Rubovi to, to be put in the closet, right? They, they are attributing some kind of mental state, uh, emotion, affect, affective states to Rubovi, but they're not quite willing to go toward giving them the status of being able to autonomously act without human control. Mm-hmm. So they create a new category of being. Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. Waiting. It creates an entirely new category of being that even if it's like data and looks human, or even if it's like Robovi and looks like a robot, it is a new potentially sentient being that we need to start thinking about how do we interact with them? How do we create appropriate ways of interaction, of relation, and of potentially respect and uh, moral and ethical responsibility? And although in this, this study, it's just a you know, proof of concept because Robobi was not acting autonomously, right? Robobi was being controlled by researchers and did not actually, as far as we know, feel bad or sad about going in the closet. But if we're on this path of recreating in some fashion, uh, human sentience or consciousness or that kind of ability, if we're the more and more autonomous we wanna make a robot or a robotic being, I think then that autonomy has to be uh, equilibrated with respect and the granting of agency for that autonomous being. And that just leads into like Battlestar Galactica. If, <laughs> if you, we don't want what happened with the Cylons to happen to uh, the Alexas, but or the Robovies for that matter. But I think it speaks to that we're on this really, really interesting event horizon of a new kind of of being emerging out of the human technological artifactual consciousness and uh, whether they become embodied in more robotic or human-like fashion, it's gonna be something that we might have to contend with. And even if it's not within our lifetimes, I think just even the notion that there could be alternative models of intelligence or uh, beings of sentience existing elsewhere from us, whether they come from somewhere else or we from uh, ourselves, we need to know what, what, what does it mean for us to interact with those beings and to do so in a respectful way. And that can only reflect back on ourselves and how we relate with each other and the earth that we're already on. I think it just speaks to the idea of relationship and of respect and of trying to further understand our own consciousness and our place and existence in the universe. And 
in defining that relationship between us yeah. and our technology and us and other sentient beings, um, it almost becomes a design problem, right? So I'm going to quote from the yeah. paper here yeah. where they say, if we design robots to do everything a child demands, does that put into motion a master-servant relationship that you would like not to reify? And uh, the yeah. paper in the discussion section outlines these two really bad options, really. Um, there are two options. Both of them are problematic. They say, <laughs> number one is that we design our robots to obey every single command yeah. that a child might give it. And because the study showed that children do give robots like Robovi some kind of moral standing that is somewhat on par with other human beings, they may carry over their treatment of robots yes. like Robovi to other human beings. Yes. And that seems like a very problematic scenario. The other scenario is that we somehow give Robovi autonomy to say, no, I don't want to go into that <laughs> closet or no, I don't want to bring you a sandwich or no, I'm not going to carry you to school. Yeah. Um, but, but in that sense, you know, if we program Robovi to be somehow resistant to commands every once in a while. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe like one out of every seven commands, it just says no to. <laughs> yeah. um, like an algorithmic response. Yeah, th that's also kind of problematic too. And uh, especially uh, because, you know, if, if Robovi isn't quite as sentient as data, we are sort of pretending that it has some kind of sentience, some kind of autonomy, when it really doesn't. It's still just following a program that either randomly picks things to say no to, or, <laughs> you know, uh, has, has a pre-programmed cadence of saying no, so that yes. human children don't just assume that it will always obey uh, their commands. What are your thoughts on this? Because yeah. it really brings it back to like this whole The Measure of a Man episode of yes. TNG, where yes. they're debating whether data has sentience, whether data has a soul. But really what gets Picard to give his final speech is his conversation with Guinan when he realizes yes. that if they deny data these rights, they are essentially creating a new ontological category of, of... android slaves. Yeah. Consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. They do the dirty work. They do the work that no one else wants to do because it's too difficult or too hazardous. And an army of data is all disposable. You don't have to think about their welfare. You don't think about how they feel. Whole generations of disposable people. talking about slavery. I think that's a little harsh. I don't think that's a little harsh. I think that's the truth. And so this this really resonated with me, this discussion same. section. Well, same discussion section and, and that, that particular scene of Guinan yeah. yeah. and, and today and thinking of, of human relationships with each other and of thinking of this possibility and of the section you're, you're speaking about um, for this paper of this new ontological category and what do we do? And it reminds me of uh, I-Vow relationship um, of Boubert and of this idea of authentic interactions with others, even if those beings may be not 
uh, organically authentic, but the relationship can be, right? Mm. There can be a level of authenticity and genuineness <laughs> of realness in our interactions with others, whether or not those things be ontologically real. Mm. It's about the I-thou relationship between the two parties and of an authentic respect. And I think this has to do both with the data episode. It has to do with our current state of social relationships, uh, particularly in, like in the United States. And I think it has to do with stuff we've discussed in astrobiology seminar this past year of thinking of even past indigenous ways of living with the land and of this reciprocity of relationship and of mutual beneficence of respect. And so it is going to be a tricky area of, <laughs> of for roboticists and for philosophers and for psychologists and for people in general, if we really are continuing as it appears we are on this path to creating an potentially a new ontological category. And we're going to have to contend with these, these, uh, I wouldn't say problems, I just say the logistics of if we're going to continue to try to replicate human consciousness and create in its uh, space, a new category of consciousness or sentience or roboticness, <laughs> but <laughs> there can still always be an authentic relationship between the two. And that does not depend upon the, the realness uh, or the ontological category that that being exists in or of anything. It's just of an understanding of mutual respect mm -hmm. and of, of not believing that we are owning anything in this life, really, because there's no property to be had that won't be lost once one is gone. And that has to do with anything you have now and anything we ever create and anything we interact with is we're all part of this cosmic cycle. Sorry to take it here, but this is where it's going. Uh, <laughs> take away, go, yeah, go. Yeah, we, we, uh, we're part of something larger. Um, you can look at the night sky and see that. Um, and you can look at your phone and see that as well, part of a social network. And I think uh, there's no good nor bad, but thinking makes it so, if Shakespeare thought it, so maybe I might speak it. <laughs> I think that we must understand that we exist only in relationship to everything else around us. And our best bet at having a good life for ourselves, whatever that might mean, um, is to authentically engage with everything, whether it be technological, artifactual, natural, environmental, people, whatever we're engaging with and interact with it authentically and in a way that is uh, respectful mm -hmm. and with the deep, deep knowledge that it's all transient and passing. Mm, this is so profound. Yeah, thank you <laughs> I did not mean words. to take it there, but it, well, it I, I'm, I'm going to take it to another profound point Let's here, do it. which is um, you mentioned human consciousness and Bruce Maddox, the person that Picard mm -hmm. is doing battle with in this court of yes. law over data's rights to self-determination, you know, whether or not data's can be manufactured to perform dangerous yeah. manual tasks. Bruce Maddox is asked by Picard to define sentience. Mm -hmm. Maddox says, Picard, would you enlighten us? What is required for sentience? Intelligence, self-awareness, consciousness. 
And Picard quickly proves that Data clearly satisfies the first two. He's intelligent and yeah. he's self-aware. But the last bit, consciousness, is trickier. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it gets into the metaphysical. It gets into the things, uh, you know, regarding whether or not we have souls or spirits and, and, and such. Uh, but maybe you have a different perspective on that, being a neuroscientist and a psychologist. You know, maybe to be conscious, you don't necessarily need to have this metaphysical uh, soul necessarily. So I wondered if you could define for us from your perspective, Thea, what is consciousness? What is sentience? And could you answer for sure? Does Rebovi have sentience? To me, it seems clear that Rebovi does not. Uh, but I wonder if you could say whether or not Rebovi or whether or not Data has sentience under your definition. So I might start with the opening from the Tao Te Ching that the Tao that can be spoken of is not the eternal Tao. And that perhaps consciousness, just as in the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu goes on after those opening lines to describe what Tao is. When we try to speak of something that is ineffable, we are inherently circling around something that we cannot describe with words. But consciousness itself, if I had to get to uh, some point around it or at least circle around, uh, I think consciousness is something that involves the, at least in human terms, the awareness of one's awareness, the meta-awareness, the metacognitive processes that allowed humans to think and therefore be, and therefore interact with each other and create all these incredible things that we have, society, technology, and terrible things. So I think of consciousness from the human perspective as meta-consciousness of the ability to reflect on one's own existence and of this ability to understand oneself almost from a third person point of view. And I think it's really deeply tied to language. Um, and I recall a conversation you and I had over some boba. <laughs> of, <laughs> uh, well, wh what came first, you know, the first conversation in one's mind or the first conversation between two human beings. And I'll leave it to the evolutionary sociologists and biologists <laughs> to, to research further. But consciousness for humans is the ability to reflect on who that we are and who we are in relation to others. However, I think consciousness exists beyond that. And potentially, since we cannot define it in words, while I, even I try to speak of it, I think there's a quality to it that we will never understand. And that goes beyond the human senses, the empirical methods ability to comprehend reality. I think consciousness is something that goes beyond even what we can get from our best instruments to assist our senses. And as I'm teaching the research methods course for psychology this summer, I'm, I'm thinking of this question of the empirical method and how we gain understanding of the world. And uh, I had a nice conversation uh, during lecture with students about, well, we're getting closer and closer approximations to this idea of truth or reality. Uh, we're never gonna get there though. I had a roommate once who uh, he didn't have the ability to smell, just born without the ability to smell. Does it mean that there weren't things to smell? 
No, there definitely <laughs> were. Uh, like once he accidentally set a piece of bread on fire in the toaster and he didn't know because he couldn't smell the smoke. But smoke mm-hmm. was there, definitely. The fire was there. Just because we don't have a sense organ to perceive something in the world doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I think consciousness is part of that realm of existence of dimensions potentially that we are not physiologically equipped to understand but it is in our human brain in our uh, neural transmission of electrical signals from neuron to neuron chemical electrical get to experience it in this way and get to understand our own personal reality through this conduit of consciousness and we'll just keep trying to circle around and understand but i think it it does exist on this ineffable level those are beautiful thoughts <laughs> um can we just quickly end by putting Rebovi on trial and data on yes. trial and you yes. are going to be philippa louvois <laughs> cool does Rebovi have consciousness and does data have consciousness so if I were to take the role of Philippa, and I will gladly do so, according to the statements made by both sides, by Riker and by Picard, I would still grant data autonomy in choice. However, I would not grant the same to Rebovi because I think there is this connection of humans to the exterior of something, whether or not that be a good approach, Robovi looks like a robot and looks like a tool, something that we can use and that we ultimately will consider as our property at the disposal of Starfleet. But when it starts to look like us, that's when we get a little, I think, confused. And when we begin to see our own reflection in the technology we create, I think we begin to imbue it with more concern and care and agency. But when it continues to have the exterior that's so different than us, I think we will continue to treat it as such. So is your determination then based solely on the exterior appearance or is there actually Mm -hmm. something about data's programming or some other non-exterior attribute of data that makes him different from Robovi? Yeah. Okay. So for Data, although he is indeed an android and can, you know, have his arm removed, unlike us, and be displayed in front of someone, there appears to be a concern for his own life and of the welfare of others that goes beyond what it appears to me Robovi's capacity Mm, is. So there appears to be a capacity to be more interweaved into the lives of other sentient beings. And so if I had a sentience thermometer, (laughs) (laughs) centometer, uh, no, that's not. (laughs) My my consciousness index potentially, Mm -hmm. right? Obviously an an ineffable quality that we now create a tool to calculate. Um, (laughs) I believe that data would score very highly on my consciousness index and potentially have an arbitrary point at which I say, well, uh, this technologically instantiated being has reached the appropriate point on our consciousness index and therefore is granted agency. And then per calibration of consciousness index, 
and of ex exterior embodied form, right? Maybe we have two categories that we are, are taken to account, mm -hmm. um, but this consciousness index, I think uh, the way that Robovi has at least been demonstrated in the study uh, does not quite fall into or reach the threshold for granting of agency and autonomy beyond being the property of Starfleet. And like you said, there's this embedding within society, within the yes. relationships that Data displays through, like you said, uh, his keepsakes and his memories and the way that he's regarded by his Starfleet peers as a, as a friend and um, as a colleague. But it's tricky, though, because Robovi was, was regarded that way by children. But I think yes. most adults, Robovi would not be regarded that way. And so it's like... <laughs> it, no, I, it's a really interesting... So as Philippa, I would not grant Robovi autonomy. As Thea, mm -hmm. I might. And it depends in, in other studies using Robovi. In one, the uh, same uh, group of researchers, my advisor and his collaborators in Japan, uh, alter the voice. So now it's not a cute voice. It is a very robot, male robot sounding voice. And the participant is an undergraduate student doing a, uh, you know, they have to find this, these many items and the number of items they find corresponds to how much money they get in the task. And so at the end they say, okay, Robovi, uh, yeah, I, I found them all. And then Robovi's like, um, well, thanks for participating. Imagine I have a robot voice. Uh, <laughs> robot well, voice. thanks for participating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he's like, I'm sorry, you have not found all of the items. And he's like, wait, no, Robovi, like I found them all. Thank you. But uh, you have not found all of the items and we are done. And so anyway, Thank you for the inspiration to attempt my own synthesized <laughs> voice. Uh, the gist of he, he challenges Robovi and he is not happy with Robovi and he's claiming that Robovi are wrong. Um, and in that sense, it's a malfunctioning robot. It's a malfunctioning vending machine. Give me my Pop-Tarts. I put in <laughs> $2. Why yeah. isn't it coming out? And I think it, there's parameters that can be played with and toyed with and whether or not we have a consciousness index or an anthropomorphism index, the degree to which it looks human. I think these are all factors that are gonna play. And just like law being essentially a set of arbitrary rules that we have put into place to allow some kind of conduct to exist in our society, uh, similar laws might have to exist that are just as arbitrary, but might rely on this problem space with these parameters circumscribing you know human robot interaction and what roboticists think about as they're creating different forms it's a design problem it's also a legal problem yes a yeah. scientific problem and thea i hope that one day you get to help define this new ontological category and define our relationship to it because I think a lot of your thoughts are just so brilliant, so deep, and again, so beautiful. Uh, we should probably wrap up now. So I've got two last questions sure. for you. One is our listeners are probably gonna wanna follow your work on the internet because you have some very exciting PhD uh, dissertation studies that are in progress. Yes. Where can they follow you on the internet? Yeah, so if uh, anyone would like to follow me or reach out or talk further about the human relationship with uh, technology or the environment, uh, they can find me on Twitter. The handle is at Theo Weiss17. Um, and you can just find my 
lab page, the human interaction with nature and technological systems, Hints Lab, um, and look at some of our publications and our work there. And my advisor actually uh, somewhat recently put out a video with a, um, I believe he's a, a filmmaker, and it's a quite short video of just the absurdity of where we are right now. And it's a YouTube link that I'll go ahead and send you, Mike, or maybe, yeah. I, yeah I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put the put link it in, in the, the show, show notes. notes. Yeah, mm-hmm. great. And it's quite short, but I think it really gets to the heart of the issues that we were just discussing and of what my uh, forthcoming research and future of all of human relationships with technology and each other and the earth might be going. So it would be a great little snippet to check out. Awesome. And my final question is something that I've been asking all of my guests in 2021, because we've just gone through this really difficult year uh, or year and a half uh, through the pandemic and the various cultural and societal upheavals. Um, And I just want to ask everybody who comes on this podcast, what is one thing that gives you hope for the future? And it can be related to science, it can be related to Star Trek, or it can be related to neither, but just one thing that gives you hope. One thing that does give me hope is that I think this has to do with this question of the ineffable consciousness that we were talking about. I believe people are becoming more aware of what it means to be authentic to each other and to themselves. And... I see it happening on a small scale and despite what might be out there and uh, what might seem to be just a deluge of inauthenticity, I do believe I see a spark of people awakening to what it really means to be alive right now and to be present and to get back in tune with yourself, with each other and with everything that's going on around you. So I think I see that occurring. I think I see a tipping point. I saw, we all see this tipping point, maybe. I see it. And I, for a while, was very afraid of where it was going. But I am beginning to see nudges and trajectory uh, in the right, the right, the direction toward greater flourishing and thriving of our species and of everything that we interact with. So I see the spark and I think I do see the tipping and I think we're going to have a brighter future than maybe what I thought five years ago. But I think it's going to require continued effort and continued awakening of people to kind of just the magnificence of their own life and of themselves and of just this awesome moment in human existence that we, are privileged enough to to be at to be present at you are filling me up with hope (laughs) (laughs) i see it i see it ending it's wonderful this was such a wonderful conversation thea uh thank you so much for being on strange new worlds and good luck with the rest of your phd absolutely thank you for having me mike and i am hooked and (laughs) looking forward to watching more star trek That was part two of my conversation with UW psychologist and astrobiologist Thea Weiss. 
I had a blast talking to Thea. I feel like my mind was stretched in all sorts of different and new directions, and I learned a lot about how psychology interfaces with astrobiological inquiry from her. Now, I may not completely agree with Thea that consciousness is so ineffable a thing that words will never be able to describe it, that science will always be circling around it, never to penetrate its true nature. Of course, I cannot say for certain that we will definitely come to an understanding of consciousness, but I'm hopeful. However, I definitely concur with Thea that as of right now, consciousness does have an ineffable quality to it. It's impossible to pin it down with the words that we have, just like it's so hard to find a satisfactory definition of life that everyone can agree on. We just kind of know these things when we see them. And I think that this means two things. Number one, that consciousness and life are very real phenomena, that our brains have evolved mechanisms to detect even if we do not understand how or why they occur. And number two, that we haven't yet developed the right scientific framework with which to fully understand these phenomena. What I mean is that their ineffableness may be due to the fact that we need new laws of physics, new laws of chemistry and biology that are not yet discovered to describe these phenomena. It's kind of like we're building sand castles on the beach when an explanation of consciousness is like a skyscraper. We're just not going to be able to construct it with the plastic buckets that we have right now. But this means that these questions of life and consciousness are not just ineffable, they're also inspiring. Inspiring us not to just build higher sandcastles, but to find or invent different tools completely, different paradigms of thinking. I think this is just the beginning. Next time on Strange New Worlds, we're beaming aboard science journalist and environmental scientist Maddie Stone to talk about the intersection of Star Trek and climate change. I hope you'll join us. Until then, see you out there. Any pointers on uh, how to speak better or whatever? You're doing great. If it if you listen to it and it sounds wonky, we can do it again because I'm going to continue watching Star Trek. So <laughs> I, I seriously really like it. I'm All so right. glad. Yeah, man. It's like I don't have you know how it is. We don't have a lot of time, and if I have if I'm going to spend time watching something mm-hmm. and filling my head with information, I want it to grow me, and I feel like yeah. Star Trek does.